Well, good morning. My name is Dave Hyatt. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Hershey Free Church uh, in the area of missions and local outreach. And um, I have served here for, I don't know, close to 15 years. So it's been a privilege. Uh, Have you ever had a moment in your life that changed everything? Have you ever had a moment where you just, thank you, Ross. Appreciate it, brother. Um, Where you were, you just maybe received a phone call or an email or uh, something that just changed everything from that moment forward. Maybe it was a diagnosis or something. I have, you know, heard the word cancer um, or I'm sorry, Mr. Hyatt, there's nothing more we can do for your mom. And uh, something that changed everything in your life. Just one moment before which and after which nothing would be the same. And you knew that everything had, had changed. Everything had changed radically in that moment. Well, I was on, the, on a Zoom call with a, uh, a Ukrainian pastor in Kharkiv that's in the eastern part of Ukraine the other day um, with some other people. And we began talking about, we got talking about COVID a little bit. And um, he said, well, you know, um, the COVID situation here is this. COVID ceased to exist here in Ukraine the moment the first Russian missile hit the ground. Now, is that true? Literally true? Did COVID cease to exist? Was the SARS-CoV-2 virus immediately eradicated by this magical Russian missile? No, of course not. That's not what he meant. He meant that for all intents and purposes, we stopped caring about COVID at that point because something, something larger, something more profound, something, some bigger controlling narrative had just taken over. It's like a series, our lives can sometimes look like a series of, of fish, right? You ever see the, you know, something swimming along and a big fish comes along and, and eats it and you think, oh, that's bad. And then another fish comes and eats that fish. And then another fish comes and eats that fish. And another fish comes and eats that fish. And like, so for this guy, COVID was a pretty big fish, you know, it was, it was real. I don't mean to downplay the importance of it. It took a lot of lives. A lot of people, even in our congregation, have been deeply affected. However, the moment the first missile hit the ground and the Russian boots crossed the border, it became relatively unimportant. It was subsumed by something else, some bigger narrative that took on. So we're going to look at, if you've been with us for uh, the last several weeks, you know we've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This is a cliffhanger here, what we're going to talk about today resurrection. So we've been talking about the resurrection for the past four or five weeks, knowing that um, sometimes we celebrate Easter and we, you know, get all excited. Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's move on with our lives. Let's see you at Christmas. Well, no, we're going to unpack. We have over the last several weeks been unpacking the implications of Easter. The implications of the resurrection of Jesus radiate throughout time and history. So let me start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our passage today. Father, thank you for uh, the chance to gather together. Thank you for your grace, your mercy manifested to us in Jesus. Um, I want to intercede. I want to pray, lift up the families in Uvalde, Texas, those who've lost children, loved ones. Father, what pain they must be experiencing right now. I pray. Um, even as we discuss the, the, the resurrection today, that it would be a comfort to those, that they would be able to grieve with hope in that town, Father. I, I just grieve with those parents. I ask your blessing, the blessing of your, your presence with them. Father, I pray for, um, thank you for the chance to, to gather, to, to remember people who have given their lives in defense of our country on this Memorial Day weekend. 
Uh, I pray that our, our freedoms, hard won, hard fought, um, would not be squandered with, with foolish and silly living, but, but yield lives that are, are yield, or live to your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So turn with me, <coughs> sorry, with you, if you will, to um, 2 Corinthians 5, 13 to 15. And we're going to look at how the resurrection of Jesus um, became for humanity the, the, the singular seminal event in all of history. The apostle Paul, we're going to look at his life. He, he looked at the, the resurrection of Jesus as the most critical thing that happened in all of history. And, and, and actually, the, in the entire New Testament takes that, that eye. St. Augustine, a famous philosopher and theologian, uh, he said that the resurrection of Jesus, that the death and resurrection of Jesus were the turning point for all of history. Up to that point, all of humanity been on a, had been on a cycle, a wheel of life and death, the circle of life. It was just life and death, and seasons come, seasons go. We live, we die. But this, it was somehow God in, interjected himself into the timeline of history, into the circular timeline, and broke it and made it a line that it had a beginning and an end at the, the, the cross and resurrection of Jesus and the end of time, that suddenly time was going somewhere. The introduction of, of, of a, a, a telos is what the Greek says, a, a point through, to which everything in life was converging. So the, the resurrection of Jesus takes all of time in history, and it's the biggest fish of all that comes in and just absorbs everything else. And we're going to look at what the Christian life looks like, what our lives look like, what all of history looks like in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And if that sounds like a big task, it is. It's beyond my ability to do. However, we have God's Word. We have the Holy Spirit. We're going to trust that He's going to, he's going to speak through us. So let's, let's look at this passage in 2 Corinthians to, or, uh, 5, 13 to 15. Paul says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, for we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, I will admit Paul's language is often kind of convoluted, and you're trying to figure out who died, how they died. What, what. So we're going to unpack this kind of slowly and, uh, and talk together. Um, a, a, a confession to those of you who are joining us online, I'm not going to follow the notes, and those slides up there will be, I love you, whoever's running the slides. Oh, Kayla, hello. It's, it's going to be hard to follow me, but do your best, because um, <clears throat> I just modified stuff completely you know, before I came in here. So anyhow, that's the yellow pad versus my other well-scripted notes. So <clears throat> with that introduction and apology, let's jump in. There's three things I, I saw in this passage that I want to point out. The first one is that the Apostle Paul is crazy. Okay? Paul is crazy. He says from the outset, you, in, in verse 13, if we are out of our minds, and there's it's the same in Greek. It's a, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Why would Paul say if we are out of our minds? Why would people think him crazy? Why would they think that he might be off his nut? Well, uh, several reasons. One, the Apostle Paul had this complex relationship with the Corinthian church. He loved the Corinthian church. He loved the people of Corinth. This church was near and dear to his heart, but they did not return his affection very well. They, um, they looked at Paul and they said, this guy... You know, if he really, really was a great teacher, a great preacher, blah, 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 if he was all he says he is and always cracked up to be, he would be 
Um, he wouldn't come here and work. He wouldn't come here and make tents with his hands and stuff. He wouldn't live modestly. He would be wealthy, you know? He won't even take money. We want to pay him because, you know, good teachers should get paid for what they do, right? If he's excellent at what he does, he should be making money at it. But he refuses to take money. He refuses position. He refuses, you know, the honor that should come with being an excellent teacher. So he must be a little off. Why would someone do that? That doesn't make sense to us. He must be a little off. Further, we know that Paul has suffered like crazy. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians or 11 to 24. And I call this the biography of Paul's beatings. I don't really keep a list of the, the sufferings in my life anywhere other than in my failing memory, but Paul had a rather distinct memory of some of the things that had happened in his life. Um, so here are some of them. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 28, Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 for those of you uh, who are challenged a bit there. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. So rods were the Roman equivalent of being whipped. Once I was pelted with stones, beaten with stones so badly that they left them for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, have gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. And besides all that, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. And Paul doesn't record everything. He's got, he got bitten by snakes. He didn't tell about that. People had to lower him in a basket out of town so that he wasn't killed at night. They put him in a basket, lowered him down the wall. People had said, you know what? We are so committed to killing this guy that we're not going to eat any food until we kill him. So this, he's, lived a, he's had a rough go of it, Paul. He has had a rough go of it. So they would think, okay, this Paul must be nuts because, one, he refuses the honor and privilege of his position. He doesn't take money, blah, blah, blah. He's also, he just keeps getting up off the canvas. You think Rocky was nuts. Paul just keeps getting up. It keeps taking it, keeps taking it, keeps going back. After he was stoned, he, recall, he records being pelted with stones till they thought he was dead. You know what Paul did? He dusted himself off and headed back into town. You know, one more time. Thank you, sir. May I have another? He just kept at it. And on top of this, Paul worked, I would say tirelessly, but I'm sure he got tired. I'm sure he got tired. He worked so hard for Jesus, sharing that he traveled the world over. The known, the known world, Paul traveled over 10,000 miles that are recorded. And I'm sure it was more than that, but just what's recorded. And these were not like reward points miles that he was garnering, you know. These were not first class. Hey, you could, these were 10,000 miles of travel from Spain to Asia Minor, Cappadocia, all over the known world in boats that apparently if he sunk three times were not all that reliable, right? Um, on donkeys where he faced danger going through mountain passes from bandits, he says danger. He was exposed. He was outside. He, had, he was naked. It was, so travel, very, very difficult travel for thousands and thousands and thousands of miles so he could tell people that God loved them and he wanted to make their lives better and that God had shown up in the person of Jesus and wanted to change their reality. So Paul, first of all, 
He looks like a kook, right? He looks nuts. They assumed he was crazy because he looked awfully crazy. But what does Paul say? Back to our passage today. Paul says, I'm not crazy. I'm compelled. I'm not crazy. I'm compelled. I am compelled by Christ's love. And when he says, I'm compelled by Christ's love, think of a, 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 someone being shot out of a cannon. They really have no, no choice about which direction they're going to go, Right? They may have had a choice to get into the cannon or not. They made the regrettable choice to enter the cannon, but once they did, they're being shot out. Paul is, the Greek word just means to be compelled, pressed on every side so you don't have any choice but to go one singular direction. And that direction, Paul says, is the only direction I could go. It's the direction I did go. The suffering that I, could, I endured for Jesus Christ, the service that I rendered unto Jesus Christ, I had no choice in the matter because the love of Christ compelled me. And, you know, Greek scholars, they debate, so was this the love that that Paul had for Jesus or or the love that Jesus had for Paul? I don't think language works that precisely. It's not math. It's yes, yes, Paul's love for Jesus, but probably even more so Jesus' love for him compels him. It compels, it constrains, it pushes him in this direction so that his life makes absolute perfect sense in light of the reality that he holds in his mind. Because Paul became convinced. He was compelled by love because he can, became convinced of one thing. He became convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, that it really happened, and that changed everything in Paul's life. If you know a little bit about Paul's life, you know that before he became a Christian, before he became a follower of Jesus, this man um, was a, a fierce, fierce opponent of the Christian faith. Because Paul was a good, Saul at that point was a good Jewish man. He was a Pharisee. He was a well-studied religious leader in the religious faith of Judaism. He, He was passionate about the Judaic faith. He had studied under the best scholars of the world. He had memorized the Old Testament. He knew it inside, outside, backside. He, he had made his trips up to Jerusalem. He had done his sacrifices. He was a committed Jewish man. He was committed to the way of Judaism. And along comes this guy, Jesus, who says, I'm going to turn everything on its head. I'm Israel's Messiah, Israel's Savior. I am the, I, I'm literally in my flesh the, the one that was promised for all time. I'm the God that you know about from the Bible. And Paul's like, this is heresy. This is blasphemy. This is awful, and I have to stop it. And, th- and worse, this guy Jesus ends up dead, killed by the Romans, and his followers keep on spreading this mess. They keep on going out and talking to people, going around the world, telling other people that Jesus is the way. So let's... Let's read Paul's response. What's he going to do about this? He can't stand it. It's driving him nuts. So what's he do? Acts 9, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 9, the first few verses, talk about Saul's conversion. So his name was Saul before this, before he became the apostle Paul. He says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, against Jesus' disciples, against Christians. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Can you give me arrest warrants? Give me authority to arrest people so that if he found any who belong to the way, the way of Jesus, followers of Jesus, whether men or women, I don't care. I want to bring them back here as prisoners to Jerusalem in shackles. As, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and, I heard a voice, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the next 
sentence is about to change all of, all of history for Saul. All of everything that, that Saul ever knew or thought. This is about to blow every category he ever had in his entire life. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I am Jesus. Saul, to him, Jesus was this, 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 this at best he was a lunatic who was, who was um, misleading the people of Israel. At worst, he was some deceiving, you know, trickster who was deceiving people. But suddenly, this, this was like a thunderclap. Have you ever seen the, if you've seen any of the Avenger movies, you know, when Thor lands and boom, all this, this, no, that was good. That'll work. So um, like a, a shockwave that goes out. This shockwave goes out. If this is true, if Jesus truly is the one who knocked him off his horse, this changes everything for Paul. This changes everything for Saul. He's, he's suddenly standing in the presence of not this, uh, this itinerant preacher who's dead, who rightfully died on a cross. This is, in fact, who he claimed to be. This is... This is the Son of God. This is the same God that, that Paul, Saul, has worshipped his entire life, whose name he was afraid to take on his lips, Yahweh. He wouldn't even speak that name because it was too beautiful. It was in, ineffable. I can't say that. I won't even write all the letters out. It's so beautiful. I, this is the God who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, who split the Red Sea, who judged the gods of Egypt, who led Israel by pillar and fire, you know, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. This is the God who, who appeared to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am. This is him. This is him. It's like, this can't be. How could this possibly be? How could this Jesus be the one who had promised that all the prophets had, long, had longed to see and they pointed to? Suddenly, Something, everything had changed for Paul. The resurrection of Jesus here that he realizes was true changed everything for Paul. Changed everything. Paul realized that Jesus died. It wasn't the death of Jesus, even though as we look at our passage, it said, you know, that in Christ all died. I'm compelled because I know that one died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. The death of Jesus was tragic. Uh, theologians, there are Christian theologians who say they're Christian. They say, look, the, the, the death of Jesus was just an awesome example of someone really, really nice but kind of deceived who laid down his life to, to show us how we should live. We should live self-sacrificial lives like Jesus lived and lay down our lives. Uh, back to the turn of the last century, this was a lot of the debate. Was the resurrection real? Well, even if it's not real, it was, it's cool conceptually that someone would lay down their life for other people. And we should follow that example because it's really, it's really nice. It's really quaint. It's almost, you know, isn't that special church lady-ish, you know? Um, Paul says that's not at all what happened. When Jesus laid down, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus took the death of Jesus and infused it with meaning. It says that that beaten and bloodied man on the cross is the God of the universe. That, that person who suffered at the hands of Pilate and suffered at the hands of Jews and was spit upon by the Roman soldiers and was mocked by the Pharisees and said, if you are the son of God, come on down from the cross. Jesus said, I'll do you one better. I'll stay on the cross. I'll complete the work of salvation. I'll, I'll be packed in 75 pounds of wrapped up, lay in a tomb for three days, and then I'll come back. How's that? You know, the 
two-ton stone will be rolled away and I will come back. And that's, for Paul, happened all in that instant, that instant in time, the death of Jesus became not just an interesting event about some guy, but the God of the universe. Two things, he became way different than Paul ever conceived. The incarnation suddenly became real. It became possible that God could show up in flesh and blood and suffer and die. So everything that Jesus taught about the kingdom and grace and forgiveness just became true to him. And the way of salvation was now suddenly open, open wide to any who would believe. It wasn't what, what Paul had thought and understood that by way of sacrifice and all the, but that, that Jesus had suddenly blown open the way of salvation that all who would come to him in faith. He didn't understand all this right at that moment, at least this, this part about salvation, but he came to understand that, oh my goodness, what Jesus accomplished on the cross meant that everyone had died in him and everybody would receive that free gift could then know and experience eternal life. So Paul's life suddenly took a completely different trajectory. Was he crazy? No, he was just compelled by the reality that Jesus had died and risen again. He was convinced by the love because if God is that good, everybody should know about it. Everybody should know about it. And this news, this message of what Christ has accomplished should be proclaimed to all people around the world. Now, is this just something pretty interesting, you know, an awesome Hopefully awesome, hopefully. But a, a historical lesson about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, Paul, the change in trajectory of his life. Or does it have implications? Does that, that shock wave continue till today? Well, Paul says in here, he says that those who died might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. If you are a follower of Christ, the shock waves of what Jesus did in his resurrection should resonate into your life as well, into our lives, into my lives. And my life, I only have one. Um, admittedly, it doesn't um, show up in my life the way I want it to, but it should. It should. And it does, and I, I get to see from my vantage as a missions pastor here how Christ's life, how his impact of what he did does continue to impact people around the world. I've, you guys may have heard um, even preach here my friend Wawa, uh, what a strong Jean-Baptiste. He's a president of a seminary in, in Haiti. And um, Wawa, when he was an 18-year-old guy, he became a follower of Jesus. Much to his father's chagrin, who was a voodoo priest. So his, his, his dad tried to beat him to death with an axe handle, attack him with a machete. Um, and you'd think, what, what 18-year-old kid would be like, no, I'm going to continue to walk with Jesus no matter if my dad kicks me out of the house and tries to kill me. He's like, well, because if, if what Jesus said is true, then I might look silly for following this way, but it's the only way to go. It's the only way to go. Um, my, my one friend, there's a, uh, there's a guy, Mihai. I'm going to Moldova next week, and uh, Moldova borders on Ukraine there going, and um, Mihai was a, uh, a young guy. Again, he was 18 years old and was living under the Soviets and was told, you know, was drafted into the military. They all go into the military under the, the Soviet Union. Uh, look it up. It was... Uh, so he was taken in there and did really, really well on all of his exams. And so they were like, hey, we want to give you, put you in a good, good place as a military guy. Um, but there's this one little thing here. It says here that you're a Christian. Your parents are Christian. You say you're a Christian. Um, just say you're not a Christian and we'll send you to, you know, some really good place. And he said, well, but I am a Christian. I'm like, well, can you just say you're not? Because it would be bad if you are. He said, no, I, I'm a Christian. He said, now look, Mihai, we like you. But if you insist on saying you're a Christian, 
we will send you for your military service to be with the white bears. Now, if you're familiar with the Soviet Union, it spans all of Russia, all of Siberia. What they meant is we're going to send you to the worst bit of the world, Siberia, um, where the white bears live. And Mihai, he told me, he said, you know, Dave, the communists never told the truth. This time they told the truth. He said, <laughs> they sent me for two years service with the white bears out in the middle of nowhere at 30 minus, minus 30 degrees. But for the cause of Christ, they look like a nut. It's like just one little, you know, we'll just check this box and not that box. Life will be good and happy for the next two years. Life will be miserable and sad for those two years. He's like, nope, check that box. And he had a wonderful, yeah, I, he, the Lord used him out in that horrible environment. Um, we have missionaries from our church that if you look at their life, you would, their, their peers, other people might say they're crazy. They, they might just say they're nuts. We have uh, one missionary family. Um, he's a chemical engineer. She's a physician. Uh, and they work in leper colonies in Wuhan, China. Okay? They, and they, they raise their financial support. We as a church get to support them and partner with them. Instead of going and making whatever, you know, they would be making a, a good wage, living very comfortably in the United States. They're like, no, um, the love of Christ compels us elsewhere. The love of Christ compels us to go elsewhere. And they planted churches and schools and um, care, elder care and pre crisis pregnancy centers in Wuhan. And you've heard of Wuhan probably. So living there right now is not very easy for these guys. And yet they serve. They continue to serve. They can continue to serve. And it's not painful. They don't sit there and say, oh, we're miserable, but it's joy. Because there's a joy set before them. So this doesn't just reside in 2,000 years ago. This is true in the lives of people today. And it's, it's true in the lives of people in our church. I've seen people here. I've met people here who have suffered um, they suffered the pain of loss of a spouse, of a child, and yet they continue. They say the truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection is my hope, and I hang on to that, and it gives meaning. It's that big old fish that came along and ate this reality, though this one is painful. This one is real. Paul said we, we grieve, but not without hope, that the hope of the resurrection comes, and it encapsulates that, that we, we grieve with hope. I've seen that here. You heard Cam's story here last week um, of suffering with leukemia and being like, what's wrong with that dude? How can he still be happy? At and he didn't sugarcoat stuff. He was, he's sick and like, I don't want to be sick. But, but now they're asking him to, to head up a, 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 um, a task force for young adults, how to deal with their cancer and stuff because they see a joy that I think is instilled by the resurrection. And just as an aside, um, regrettably, I spent a lot of my life and, 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 and mental energy thinking that, wow, God works in spite of pain in people's lives. God works in spite of the hardships, in spite of the divorce, in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the death, in spite of the um, sickness and sadness and poverty. God works in spite of, in spite of, in spite of, in spite of. And even I am not that thick that I didn't eventually say, wait a second, maybe there's a it's not in spite of. Maybe it's because of. Maybe God actually works through suffering in the lives of the believers. And do you know what? Lo and behold, the Bible says that's the case. <laughs> uh, Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 3, not only so, but also we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That God 
redeems the suffering of his people. It not only, he not only lets us endure it, but it has this feedback loop that it, and it creates, it, it strengthens the muscles in our endurance that we become stronger as we suffer. If there's any, the one massive failing of the U.S. church, honestly, is that the, we suffer very little. Honestly, we've had pain in our lives, and, but it's, um, in, in general, the U.S. church, I, I look at our brothers and sisters around the world. I look at the Haitian church where I was supposed to be uh, last week, and they just did graduation. I mean, people are burning tires in the street. There were 130 people killed in gang violence right outside of where they were meeting, and yet they met and they did graduation. They're commissioning missionaries to go to West Africa, trying to plant churches. How do we reach Haiti for Jesus? I'm like, Wow, most folks would be in a corner sucking their thumb. And there they go. They continue to send. They just continue to get because the love of Christ compels them. It constrains them in that direction. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, and we do see evidence of that in our lives, but not as much as, um, as I think I would like to. So you would think, I'm just going to wrap up, that the, the, the conviction that Jesus rose from the dead would compel everybody to a certain way of living, right? Would compel people not necessarily to suffer five times lashing, all this beating and all this, but at least to live a life that's, that's somewhat different because we're convinced of it. Um, I ran across a study this past week. It said that they did a survey in the United Kingdom of, uh, of everybody and found that 45% of those who responded said they believed in the resurrection of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. They believed that literally what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus happened. Then they went on to say, well, how many of you then are, are devoted, committed followers of Jesus? It was 6%. So, okay, wait a second. I'm doing the math. There's 39% of people who would say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that just as it says in the Bible that he died for people's sins, he rose again, breathed in life, stone rolled away, boom, there he is, he's alive. But I don't care. It's not going to make a difference in my life. I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do. Paul would look at them and say, you think I'm crazy. You think I'm nuts. You just keep living like the, the reality is not, you know, you're unhinged from reality. You say this is true, but you live like it's not true. That's crazy. So um, for us in our lives, it, it, and I'm, it's easy to pick on the British because they're over there, right, and they talk funny, um, and someone did the study. If they did the study here, I'm afraid the numbers would be worse. There would be um, many, many more people who would say, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I believe the resurrection of Jesus. Do anything about it? Absolutely not. What do I care? It's like, um, okay then. So it's easy to pick on those guys, but if uh, they're in our lives, in our church, in my life, I know there are often times when it makes precious little difference, unfortunately. Um, it makes precious little difference in, the, in how I view my finances or my relationships or my own suffering. I forget. You know, I, we, we think that we're, we're completely logical people. We become convinced of something and we continue to live, live that way for the rest of our lives. Well, the nature of faith is to continue to, to, to remind ourselves. That's why we come together. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we pray because we are a forgetful people. That's why we celebrate communion together, to be reminded of the work of Jesus, that it's still applicable, that you have the most intelligent people, the most well-resourced people on planet Earth trying to convince you 
that this earth is all there is and that they that you need this to make you happy and you need that to make you happy and if you have enough electrons in your account it will make your world better and if your insurance and so you have the whole world arrayed against you trying to convince you of one thing and yet God's spirit God's word God's people we gather together to say look if Jesus really did rise from the dead it changed everything and it continues to change everything so I just want to wrap up with addressing three things. One, if you don't know Jesus, and in the room this size, there probably is someone who, who hasn't yet made a commitment to, to place their trust in Jesus. I appeal to you. It says here, Paul says, I, we appeal to you, be reconciled to God. There was a point in my life when I'm about 14 years old, my oldest brother came to me and said, hey, he shared with me about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which I already had vague knowledge about, but all I knew was this guy died on a cross, and now we get to eat chocolate crosses, and that's cool. But beyond that, I really knew nothing. I'm like, why he died and why we have Easter eggs and bunnies and baskets, I don't know, but if it just means I get more chocolate, then the world's an okay place with me. Um, but he explained to me that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that was my oldest brother. He said, hey, Jesus died for you, and he wants to swap his perfect life for your broken and sinful life. I'm like, why? Why would he do that? And it was the love of God that he would swap his, his sinless, perfect life. He would give me his, his goodness, his grace, if I would but say yes. So when Paul says that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, he said, you want to live for Jesus or live for you? I'm like, well, it's not working out for me, so I'll take Jesus' life. And at that point, I place my trust in Jesus. If you have not done that, if you have not at a point in time placed your trust for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life in Jesus, I, as Paul says here, I urge you to do so. Uh, we'll have prayer counselors up here at the end. Come and talk with them. But... If you want to, here are a couple of diagnostic questions for those of you who say, yeah, I did that. I have done that at a point in my life. I've made that decision to follow Jesus. Let me ask you a couple of questions um, so you can reflect on these to, to diagnose how are you doing, not to condemn you, but to invite you. Um, so how are you doing at suffering? How are you doing at suffering? How do you respond to suffering in your life? Do you avoid it at any cost? I don't want hardship. Nobody, of course we... But do you just avoid and run, or when, when it comes, do you, do you grumble and judge, or do you say, okay, I can take this in light of that, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of what God has accomplished, I can know that this isn't the end of the story, that this is part of the story. I can grieve, but I can do so with hope. How are, that, I think that's, that's a, a, an indicator of how convinced we are, as Paul says, I'm convinced of the resurrection, convinced that one died for all. Um, our, con our conviction, our convincedness goes away over time. And how are you doing on mission? Paul says, we're convinced that one died and therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So he says, if the resurrection is true, we're convinced of the resurrection, we begin to live our lives both for him and for other people. We love other people, so, um, so love for other people, uh, our, our heart to be on mission. So suffering and serving both begin to change in our life as we have developed deep convictions about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I think it's safe to assume that we're all messing up at some level, that we're all looking and saying, well, I don't feel like I'm shot out of, cannon, out of a cannon every day to live my life full on for the grace and power of Jesus and fold with it. And you know, that's okay. The way is still open to be, to, 
the, the, the death of Jesus to be applied in your life, the resurrection of Jesus to be applied in your life day after day is still open. I had the unfortunate um, opportunity yesterday to figure out um, why, I don't know, I don't know. My, my stupid, I'll just go, my router wouldn't work. My Wi-Fi router would not work. Okay, I wake up trying to do stuff, nothing to work. And do you know what you should do whenever your router won't work? Anyone? Turn it off, turn it on. Yeah. Did you try restarting it? It's the, the question that, you know, every tech service person and every, you know, everybody, you, you want to punch people in the head. Those are fighting words where I'm from. Did you try restarting it? Like, no, but uh, eventually I did. So I tried restarting it. And you know what? The thing fired right up. Did it say, I don't know what evil magic happens that that, that it gets in there and gets stupid over time. But, but this is the thing with electronic devices. They, they ha- hang on to bits of code that they should let go. They, um, they, they just keep running bits of program that should have, have stopped, but they don't. So you have to restart them. Well, in the Christian life, you have to try restarting it. And that restart is every day. That restart is every time, every moment you realize you've, you've wandered away, every time you've realized that, hey, I'm focused on myself more than on the, the work of Jesus. I'm focused more on my needs than, rather than the needs of others. Did you need to hit the restart button? Now, Jesus died. He gave his life for you. And the, that positionally, theologians will say, you died with Christ. The moment you received Jesus, you were placed in him, and that will never, ever, ever change. You are placed in him, and you will also be raised with him. Absolutely true. However... Functionally, in a moment-by-moment sense, the Bible says we are living sacrifices. And these living sacrifices tend to crawl off the altar sometime. And we got to, you know, the ways we remind ourselves to crawl back on that altar through the Word of God, through prayer, through fellowship, you get back on there, through confession, through talking to Jesus. So we, we get back on so that we can experience that ongoing resurrection work of Jesus, to be re-enamored with the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. So that is the, uh, the struggle of the Christian life, is to, to re-remember the ongoing work of the resurrection in our life of what Jesus has done. And it's kind of like right now, folks, one thing um, I like about European soccer that they, they used to do, they don't so much anymore, is they used to not tell you when the game was going to be over. They used to, you, you, it was 90 minutes, okay, you played your 90 minutes, and then you're in, you're in injury time, penalty time. You didn't know. Now they hold up a sign and tell you it's about five minutes. That's a bummer. It used to be, it was just like, you didn't know. You didn't know if the game was almost over, if they had 10 minutes. Only the ref on there knew. We're in, we're in sudden death. We're in injury time here. We don't know when it's all going to be over, but we're living, the clock is ticking, the, the, in, the when Jesus came at his resurrection, he started a clock ticking towards the end of time when he's going to come back. And in that interim, we get to live, trying to live in light of that reality of his death and resurrection and his soon coming. But not an easy thing. That's why we, we have to, you know, reflect back on the resurrection in a daily, daily way. So let me close in prayer and invite our, our prayer counselors to come on up. Father, thanks for the work of Jesus on his cross. Thanks for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that you vindicated him. You said, this is, I am, I am who I said I would be. I'm faithful that you giving your life for us um, was not just something quaint, but became for us the, the most glorious truth in all of history, that the God of the universe loves us deeply. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.